0: All right, our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Lord Jesus, it is our great privilege today to gather before you as your people. You have cleansed us from our sins. You have released us from our guilt. You have made us right with God. And you have saved us from an eternity of judgment. And you have done all of this by your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave and your ascension to the right hand of the Father. Lord, let our prayers and our rejoicing and our weeping today be rendered to you as worship because you are worthy of our unwavering devotion, and you are worthy of our faith, even if our circumstances make our trust in you seem absurd sometimes. And now, Lord, enlighten our minds to grasp this wonderful text from the Apostle Peter. Amen. Now, just so you know, these verses in 1 Peter chapter 3 are some of the most difficult and debated verses in all of the Bible, not only the New Testament, but all of the scriptures, in what way was Jesus made alive in spirit? Is Peter revealing something that Jesus did while his body was in the grave? That is, that while his body was in the grave, his spirit, his immaterial spirit, went and preached to spirits in prison, and who are the spirits in prison, and what prison is Peter talking about, and what is Peter saying about baptism here? And we'll tackle all of these questions as we go, but I don't want us to lose sight of Peter's point in these verses, because these, you, we can really get lost down in the weeds here. Okay, but I don't want us to lose sight of Peter's point, which is this to give us courage and endurance as we experience unjust suffering. That's what Peter's doing because Christ also suffered, verse 18. Christ also suffered. Now, Peter has already called us to follow Jesus through suffering back in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus was the perfect sufferer. He was the perfect shepherd. And just as Jesus suffered unjust hostility to gain victory, to gain glory, So our suffering leads to victory. It is in our suffering unjust hostility, just like Jesus suffered it, that we know his victory. And to drive this home, to give us courage, Peter provides three aspects of Christ's victory through suffering. Three aspects of of Christ's victory. First of all, the incarnate Christ suffered a victorious death. The incarnate Christ suffered a victorious death. Peter has been talking a lot about doing good. That as God's people, as God's exiles in the world, that we are to be about doing good, proactive good. Nobody did more good than Jesus did. Nobody was more proactive about helping people, meeting people's needs, speaking the truth to people, healing people, delivering people. Nobody impacted the culture or the world with more good than Jesus did. And so no one ever suffered more unjustly than Jesus did. No one has ever suffered more evil done to them than Jesus suffered. Christ also suffered. And when Peter says suffered here, he is talking about Jesus' death. That is the ultimate injustice. That is the climax of his suffering, that he died. And what was the result? Victory. Glory. Glory. Exaltation, which proves that if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. That's what Peter said back in verse 14 of chapter 3. He said, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Jesus also suffered, and his victory and his exaltation at the end of the path of suffering is proof that if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we too will know blessing. It also confirms, verse 17, that it is indeed God's will sometimes that we should suffer for doing good. If Jesus was innocent, if Jesus was sinless and suffered then to suffer injustice cannot mean God's disapproval of us. And that is the lie. That's the temptation, is that when we suffer injustice... When we are persecuted for belonging to God, even though we've done what is right, even though we know that we have done what pleases God, yet we suffer anyway, the temptation, the lie is that somehow God is not faithful or that we are meeting his disapproval. Peter explains how Jesus' suffering accomplished this victory, and again, he hits these things that are core to the gospel. Number one, Jesus suffered as an atonement for sin, once for sins. Jesus, or uh, Christ, also suffered once for sins. This was a phrase that was used for animals that were offered as sacrifices. Jesus was a sin sacrifice. And he was offered once. For sin. So, again, he was a sufficient, final, complete sacrifice. Jesus' death provides all the forgiveness that is ever needed. It is all found in him. So Jesus suffered as an atonement for sin. We also see that Jesus suffered as a substitute for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. The suffering of crucifixion was right and appropriate for the unrighteous. Well, who's that? That's you. And that's me. We were the unrighteous, we were the ones who deserved God's judgment. We were the ones who deserved the separation from God that Jesus even experienced on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus cried. That separation from the Father, it's that separation from his presence that we should know, we should have known for all eternity, the pain, the mockery, the humiliation That was for us. That was for us. It would have been fair. It would have been just for me to be on that cross. And it would have been right. And it would have been fair for you to be on that cross. Jesus stepped in front of the blow. Jesus took the wrath of God. He was a substitute. Sometimes you will see the word vicarious used. This is what a vicarious sacrifice was. It was a substitution. Jesus, the only innocent human being, suffered death as a substitute in my place and in your place. Because the cross is what we deserve. Jesus also suffered to bring us to God, right? That was the the goal or the mission that he might bring us or lead us, to lead us to God. This is why he had to die for sins. This is why he had to die as a substitute in your place and mine, because we could never come to God as his enemies. We could never come into his presence as wicked, sinful rebels, which is what every one of us was from the day we were born. We could never approach God and somehow make a deal for peace, arrange some sort of bargain for our eternal souls. No, Jesus appeased the wrath of God by taking our punishment for sins and by making us acceptable to God. So he, he, he died as an atonement, a payment for sins, and he died as a substitute because it should have been us making that payment. And he died to lead us to God, to bring us into God's presence. He made us acceptable by forgiving our sins. And so there was mission and purpose in Christ's suffering. Watch. Even if it looked like evil triumphed at the cross. Even if it looked like God's enemies struck a blow and won a victory. Peter is saying that Jesus' death was victorious. The incarnate Christ suffered a victorious death because bringing us to God was the victory of his death. By dying, he snatched us out of the jaws of damnation and brought us to God as a cleansed, redeemed people who are the trophies of his triumph. We are the spoils of his victory. So while it looked like defeat, Though evil appeared to prevail, Christ was gaining victory. Do you see Peter's point? We are in exile. And while it may look like God's people are being conquered, defeated, suppressed, or even swept away altogether, we are gaining victory. We are being victorious. And if Jesus' death was an act of victory, one victory, if through Jesus' death God triumphed over our sin and our selflessness and our deserving of eternal judgment, then we too, following in Jesus' steps, even our suffering, even to the point of death is part of that victory. We are living out his victory. So remember, Peter says, Christ also suffered. And it was not a defeat. It was a victorious death. So the incarnate Christ suffered a victorious death. And... The risen Christ made a victorious proclamation. The victorious Christ made a... Vi- I'm sorry. The risen Christ made a victorious proclamation. Look at the middle of verse 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, let's, let's pause and talk about this for a minute. Because literally says, put to death in flesh, made alive in spirit. And some... People believe that Peter means that though Jesus' body died, though he experienced death in the flesh, his spirit, his immaterial being, continued to live while his body was in the grave before his resurrection. So between Good Friday, crucifixion, death, and his resurrection, bodily, physical, glorious resurrection from the grave, Jesus' spirit, his immaterial spirit, continued to be alive. And then to go on and do the things that Peter describes here. The problem and the main problem, to simplify again, by the way, if you take this whole passage, I was reading one, one scholar who said that throughout this whole passage, there are over 180 different combinations to understand what Peter is talking about here. That's including all the way through verse 22. So there are a bunch of puzzle pieces, jigsaw puzzle pieces here to put together, okay? So to simplify, because if I spend all the time and working through all of these different combinations, even all of the main ones, we'd have to order pizzas, okay, for everybody and keep you here all day long. All right. So just to simplify, the main problem is the word made alive always means to give life to something that is not alive. So the idea that Jesus' spirit his immaterial being continued to stay alive cannot be what that word means. So what is the the reference then of being made alive? In what way was Jesus' spirit dead and then given life? That doesn't make any sense. So without all of the various possibilities, I think the best way to understand Peter here is to to see that he is speaking of Jesus' death and then Jesus' resurrection. This is a a common word used for Jesus' resurrection. He was made alive alive. And then Peter is saying these two events, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, these are two parts in the program. These are two different pieces of the redemptive plan of God. One of those events takes place in flesh. Jesus was put to death in flesh. That is, Jesus suffered death under the power of God's enemies, that was one phase of the redemptive plan that Jesus the Christ would suffer, that he would have to die, and that he would come under the subjection, that he would submit himself to the powers of darkness. That were executed by the Jews who brought him to Rome and then the Romans who crucified him. He was put to death in flesh, but was made alive in spirit. In other words, he was raised from the dead under God's power and God's rule. You could even capitalize spirit as in Holy Spirit. He was made alive. Now, some would even say that this is he was made alive by the Spirit, that it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And there are other places in the Bible that would confirm that. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Sometimes the New Testament talks about Jesus raising himself from the dead, taking back his own life. At other times, that the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. So the whole Trinity was involved In Jesus' resurrection. But this has to do with the the, a passing of an age, do you understand? That when Jesus was put to death in flesh, the reign of darkness was being put into a coffin. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose under this new rule, this new reign of God, this new phase of the program. Now, I know that's a little abstract, but I believe that's what Peter is getting at. He is is getting at this redemptive plan, these epics of time that have passed under God's sovereign plan to save that being put to death in flesh under the power of the world, that Jesus then was made alive in spirit. Now verse 19. In which or by which this event, by this event he went and proclaimed by the accomplishment of his being made alive, being raised from the dead, Christ went and proclaimed. So, Peter is not teaching that the Spirit of Jesus went and did this proclaiming while the body of Jesus lay in the tomb. Rather, it was the resurrected Jesus who went and proclaimed. The word proclaimed means preached, sometimes uh, refers to the preaching of the gospel. Here, though, it is a proclamation of victory. That's the context. It's a proclamation of victory, a declaration of supremacy. It is that the resurrected Jesus declared, it is finished, I have won. That is his proclamation. Now we come to another little dilemma. To whom did Christ proclaim this victory? Well, the Spirit's in prison. But who's that? Again, there's lots of debate, lots of books and papers and dissertations written, okay? But spirits, I think, has to mean angels, not human beings. Human beings are always called souls. And in fact, in 1 Peter, Peter repeatedly refers to human lives as souls, not spirits, the only times, and they're uncommon, that a human being is referred to as a spirit, it always has an, another phrase with it, spirits of the righteous, the spirit of the righteous or of the such and such. Okay, They're never called, we are never called spirits. So these are angels. So what angels then are in prison? Okay, you gotta follow, follow, You got to follow the evidence, right, the line of reasoning. The clearest reference we have to angels in prison is, first, Jude, verses 5 and 6. Now, I want to remind you, writes Jude, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day another text is second peter chapter 2 verse 4 verses 4 and 5 for if god did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell "...and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly." Now, both Jude and Peter are confronting false teachers, false prophets who are infiltrating the church, and they are saying that if God judged in this way, do not be mistaken. God will judge those who teach falsely, who lead his people astray, as these angelic beings apparently did. And so they, these angels, and I think we would have to understand Peter, and Jude to be talking about the same group of beings, the same spirits or the angels in prison, in chains. The question then is simply, well, what angels would be imprisoned? What angels would be kept in chains? What angels would be cast into hell or into the abyss, that word is, and held until a future day of judgment? Well, Peter right here points to the days of Noah. And he did the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2, didn't he? He connects these angels and their disobedience to the days of Noah, verse 20. Because they, the spirits, the spirits who are in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah... So these spirits then would be the sons of God, which is another name for angels, in Genesis chapter six, verses one and two, which read, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So these sons of God, These angelic beings cohabitated with human women. It's these events that immediately precede God's declaration of man's rampant wickedness and his decree, his intention to judge the world by flood. So the way Genesis 6 reads is that these events were the final trigger for God to begin the process of bringing about a worldwide catastrophic flood to judge the human race. And if Jude is referring to these same angels in Genesis 6, which seems, again, most likely, then they're leaving their proper dwelling would be this marrying women which then parallels Peter's declaration they formerly did not obey. So, to summarize then, it would seem that God punished this group of angels for their specific rebellion, this specific evil of cohabitating with human women by imprisoning them until the final judgment. Jesus, after his resurrection, went to these imprisoned angels and proclaimed his victory over them. Almost as though they were awaiting the final sentencing. Why? Why does Jesus go to these angels? What is the significance of this mission of the resurrected Jesus well, Peter doesn't tell us, but I will, I will venture a guess, okay? Now, this is, this is Sean in the white spaces, okay? But we know that Jesus' death and resurrection was not only an earthly event. In other words, not only humanity was concerned with the outcome of what happened on the cross, And when Jesus rose out of the grave, that there was something cosmic, that there was something universal going on, that the stage was bigger than just this earth and human beings, it was witnessed by all the cosmos, all of creation saw what happened Colossians 2, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes that when Jesus died, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So Jesus' death, which atoned for our sins, which substituted, took our place on the cross... And which brought us to God as God's people, cleansed and redeemed, also triumphed over all of God's enemies, including the angelic realm. There was a lot more being conquered and triumphed over than just us. So then, perhaps it is that these angels, and this is where I'm in the white spaces, okay, these angels in prison, in chains, could not witness or otherwise know what took place in Jesus's death and resurrection. Their doom wasn't sealed until Jesus had accomplished this victory. And so Jesus, having died, having risen from the dead, goes and proclaims victory Whatever the reason that Jesus does this thing, Peter emphasizes that these spirits' disobedience and their imprisonment took place in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So, now look, we've been looking at these individual puzzle pieces, okay, if we put them together, the picture we get is that, first of all, the angelic world <clears throat> and the destiny of the angelic realm is somehow bound up with ours. Secondly, that the hostility, watch, the hostility and the evil that we face is connected to greater forces of evil than just fellow human beings. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, doesn't he? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the authorities of the heavenly realms. That's who Paul's talking about there. There is a grid. The battle is much bigger. It is much greater. It's one of the reasons Peter, quoting Jesus... Says we love our enemies because they're not the enemy. And when God declares them enemies in the end, after this time of patience is over, just like God's patience in the days of Noah was eventually over. But at the end of that time, when God declares them enemies, He's God. But for now, we are seeking to see people saved. We want them to know Christ. We want them to be delivered. We want them to know this deliverance from judgment. And so, uh, to put these pieces together then, we see that, that, that God is doing this much bigger thing. And... Thirdly, then, Jesus' death and his resurrection conquered both. Conquered both. In Jesus' death and resurrection, our sin, our alienation from God was dealt with, and the whole disorder and rebellion of the angelic realm was also sealed, done, dealt with. What about the righteous? What about the righteous? Because Peter's whole point is, back to Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, to God's elect exiles, dispersed in the world. What about the righteous? Well, what about Noah? See, Peter is drawing a parallel between Noah and Noah's family and us, the church, the people of God. Evil appears to triumph because God is patient. Evil appears to be triumphing now because God is patient. God is patient. But judgment is coming. The flood was coming, Jesus' return is coming. We are waiting for that day. And Peter's already said that several times in this letter. You see how he takes these themes, these truths. right? But judgment is coming. And even though we may be few, it's Peter's point here by numbering Noah and his family, that there were eight persons in all and was all of the entire human race that lived at the time they were the only ones saved even though we may be few god knows who belongs to him god knows who his people are and he saves the righteous He saves those who live by faith in him, just like he did Noah. And though judgment will come, Jesus will bear us up and out of God's wrath, just like the ark saved the righteous by bearing them up and out of the waters of the flood. So, who is the ark? Jesus is. Jesus is the ark. Even more specifically in this passage, it is his resurrection. It is what he did by rising from the dead that saves us, that bears us out of God's wrath. So Noah's salvation Noah's salvation from the flood is a guarantee. It is a picture promise of what God is going to do. And Peter says, therefore, take courage. Take courage. Be confident in God's promise, especially when you are suffering evil. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's been from the beginning the ancient days, all the way back in the days of Noah. And especially when you consider that Christ has not only risen from the dead, but he has ascended to rule. It's Peter's next point. The incarnate Christ suffered a victorious death. The risen Christ made a victorious proclamation, and the ascended Christ ensures a victorious salvation. Verse 21, baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, this word corresponds to means patterned after. This is a type God's saving of Noah out of the waters of the flood is an archetype. And now we fulfill that archetype. In other words, baptism, this act of where we immerse people in water, is a reenactment of God saving Noah from the flood. According to Peter, the waters of baptism are the waters of judgment. So going under those waters has to do with dying or being immersed in God's wrath and his judgment on sin. And being pulled up out of that water demonstrates that you have been saved out of judgment. That Jesus has reached down and out of the wrath of God has borne you up and out of the waters of judgment. Just like he did Noah in the ark. So this, is, this, is, this baptism demonstrates a faithfulness of God to save those who trust in him. That's why when you are baptized, when you were baptized... You were saying, I believe God and I will go immersed into this wrath and he will pull me out. He will deliver me up and out of the waters of judgment. It is a profession, a confession of faith in Jesus to do that. And up and out of the waters you come. That's the picture that Peter is drawing baptism saves you. How? We know that it's not that getting dunked or being baptized is is a box we check off and now that's one more merit we've earned or something we've done to gain God's favor. We know salvation is by grace through faith. We know it doesn't work that way. But how is it that baptism saves us Peter clarifies, not as removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not a physical cleansing. Why? Because you can do that. You can get clean by taking a bath or a shower. You can accomplish that kind of removal of dirt. Filth is actually the word. You can can do that. But you see, saving you, rescuing you, rescuing you out of wrath is something only God can do. That's something only God can accomplish, and that is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This word "appeal" is probably better, uh, but, Probably better in English is the word pledge. It's a pledge. It's not not a request to God for a good conscience. It is a pledge to God. It is a commitment on our part to live consistently with our confession. That is what a good conscience is. It is the bringing our life into line with what we are professing we believe If we believe that Jesus' death, atonement for our sins, his substitution for us on the cross has brought us before God and we are his people and we are confessing that faith by going under the wrath of God and we know that we are delivered up and out of that wrath, then how we live, that by doing that act, we are pledging ourselves to live accordingly. and so baptism saves us by this pledging but look this pledging of to God of a good conscience through what the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so here's what Peter's saying he's saying that Noah was saved Through the waters, baptism represents, it reenacts this, but this baptism demonstrates our salvation, our salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the parallel. That the ark, which saved the righteous out of God's wrath, is paralleled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which saves the righteous out of God's wrath. So when you think about the parallel of climbing aboard that ark, as the rain begins to fall, the parallel for you and for me is by placing all of our hope in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That is our ark of safety. It's how we know our life is preserved from judgment. And if Jesus rising from the dead isn't enough, verse 22, verse, uh, excuse me, Jesus risen from the dead has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This gone into heaven, this is what we call the ascension. And it's recorded in Luke 24. It's recorded in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus' disciples see him they witness, eyewitnesses they are, to Jesus' ascension into the sky, through the clouds, and gone. They see him go. It is this part of this event of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, it is this part that usually is underemphasized. We usually miss this one. But it is the necessary conclusion to Jesus' mission. Jesus' ascension is kind of like his coronation. Is where he is crowned by God before all of creation as he ascends to God's right hand. This is the Father's final approval of the Son. And Peter is saying... That Jesus went, the resurrected Lord, just as he went. It's the same word, by the way. The same way that he went to the spirits in prison to proclaim, he went to the right hand of God. He ascended. So the ascended Christ then ensures a victorious salvation. How? Because he is over angels, authorities, and powers. These are all, again, these are all titles for different levels of angelic beings, different rankings, different types of angels. We know there are different types of angels, even from what the Bible does tell us. There are seraphim and cherubim, and some are messengers, and some just fly around the throne and cry, holy, holy, holy for all eternity. There are all kinds of different angels. We know there are different powers, that some angels are more powerful than others. They have different titles. There's a lot we don't know about the angelic realm, but these are just some of the pieces. But these angels, authorities, powers, they have been what? Subjected to him. Does that word look familiar? This is the same word that Peter has been using over and over and over again. Subject yourself. Subject yourself. Submit. In this case, though, it is not submitting oneself, an act of self submission. It is that they have been subjected to him against their will. And yet he is sovereign, he is supreme. And so Peter weaves these together then. The death of Jesus is a victorious death because it has won our forgiveness from sin, our deliverance from sin, our forgiveness of sins, that cleansing, and has brought us to God. Jesus' resurrection secured eternal life and salvation from judgment And his proclamation to God's enemies is proof of that. And his resurrection is like the ark. It delivers us up out of God's wrath. And Jesus ascended. And when Jesus ascended, he brought the exercise of sovereign kingship You see, now that he is at God's right hand, and all of the angelic realm, all of the cosmos is subjected to his supreme authority, Jesus exercises his kingship to preserve his people in exile and bring them safely through all suffering of hostility. That's what Peter's saying. It must be that way. Because God has declared it to be so. And that is our confidence as God's people. This is why Peter said back in chapter 1, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you at Jesus' return. And Peter says all of this now to assure us of victory. Christ's victory is our victory Because our suffering is his suffering. Let's pray.